every day at my LCS I find the bad books that are best I know I got some inside information You know I've got some guys Bad books for beginners Hosted by Chris and Jerry It's just bad books for beginners With Chris and Jerry Hello and welcome to this edition of TBU's Bat Books for Beginners, episode 176. My name is Jerry. And I'm Chris. And we're your hosts. On Bat Books for Beginners, we will examine story arcs with Batman and related characters. We'll give you the historical background of the book, break down the plot and the art, and give you our opinions so you can decide for yourself if they're worth a read. Today's Bat Book Chris and I are covering is... Batman, Death in the City. Chris, tell us a little bit about this book. Thank you very much, Jerry. Happy New Year, Bat fans. Thank you for spending a part of your day with us today. Batman, Death in the City is a 192-page softcover trade paperback that was cover dated November 2007 and had an original cover price of $14.99. As far as I could ascertain, this trade paperback has gone through only one printing. This trade paperback reprints Detective Comics issue numbers 827 through 834 that were cover dated March through September of the year 2007, and the individual issues had a cover price of $2.99. The individual issues appear to be available on Comixology. If you're interested in obtaining this in a hard copy, online pricing in the secondary market has this trade priced for as low as $9.85, to as high as upwards of $46. So there's quite a range there, yeah. You may be lucky if you're going to go for the individual issues, as I found most of those from online vendors for significantly less than the cover price, with the exception of Detective Comics number 831, which was a Harley Quinn story. Prices were higher for that issue if you could find a copy, going for at least two to three times as much as the cover price. Okay, listen carefully, and I'm not saying this to be funny and for this next next paragraph. Batman, Death in the City should not, repeat, not be confused with the trade paperbacks entitled Batman, Death in the Maidens, Batman, Death by Design, Batman, Death Mask, Batman, Death of Innocence, Batman, A Death in the Family, Batman, Death of the Family, Batman, Death Bull after the Fire, Batman, Life after Death, Batman, Redwater Crimson Death, Batman, The Many Deaths of Batman, Batman, The Red Death, Batman, The Strange Deaths of Batman, Batman, Dead Man, Death and Glory, and Batman, Death Blow, After the Fire. It's not them. Not them. No, no, no. This is Batman, Death in the City. Not to be confused with the Yafford mentioned. (laughs) Mercy sakes. Okay, if I apologize right now, because I'm going to repeat myself with respect to our creative team here, much of the creative team we have for this trade paperback is pretty much the same group we had from our last episode. Paul Denny wrote issue numbers 827, 828, 831, 833, and 834. Denny is 60 years old, and he was born in New York, New York. The most recent thing I read was the very emotional, very powerful, gripping graphic novel entitled Dark Knight. That's Knight with the N. 
Dark Knight, a true Batman story in which Denny recounted his vicious near-fatal mugging attack that occurred back in 1993 in Los Angeles. Now, as I said in our last podcast, this is a book worth a read and one that I highly recommend. As I said previously, Bat fans will know Denny from his work on Batman the Animated Series, where he worked as a writer, editor, and producer on the show. Along with Bruce Timm, he co-created Harley Quinn. He also worked on some oversized graphic novels with Alex Ross. Denny has won five Emmy Awards for his animated-related work. Before his work on Batman, he's worked on Tiny Toon Adventures, and before that, the Masters of the Universe series. Yep, and as stated in the previous podcast, Denny is married to Misty Lee, who is a stage magician. And again, I wonder if we're going to see another Zatanna appearance in this book. I wonder. <laughs> I wonder. <laughs> Let's see. Now, we had Stuart Moore. He wrote issue numbers 829 and 830. Among his credits is the novelization of Marvel Comics Civil War. He's also written Web of Spider-Man and Wolverine Noir for Marvel Comics. And for Firestorm for DC, hey, shout out to the Irredeemable Shag. He was on the list of founding editors for DC's Vertigo imprint title back in the mid-1990s. And for that, he won an Eisner Award. Rounding out our writers, we also had Royal McGraw, who wrote issue number 832. McGraw was mentioned on our last show. He's had a few other Batman-related writing credits around this time, but nothing too extensive. According to his website, he's done work for the Sci-Fi Channel and is the executive producer for Pixelberry Studios. Hmm. The cover artwork for this trade paperback, and for all the individual issues, was done by Simone Bianchi. Bianchi is a native of Italy, and you've heard his name mentioned several times in our podcast before. Mm -hmm. Don Kramer was the primary artist on issue numbers 827, 828, 831, 833, and 834. Kramer is 48 years old. He was born in Seoul, South Korea. Batman fans may be familiar with his work on the Nightwing title in the past. He's also worked on Wonder Woman when J. Michael Straczynski was writing the title. Andy Clark provided the primary artwork for issue numbers 829 and 830. He was previously mentioned when Jerry and I reviewed Batman Face to Face. He's a British artist who broke in professionally with a British series titled 2000 AD. He's also done work on Batman Confidential, Aquaman, Batman, Rebels, Batman and Robin, Batman Eternal, and Death of Wolverine, The Logan Legacy. Over on Amazon.com, this trade paperback got a rating of 4 stars out of 5 based on 12 reviews. And over on Goodreads.com, this also got 4 stars out of 5, but based on 49 reviews. Hmm. How are Jerry and I going to rate this? Please stay tuned for our own personal ratings. <laughs> You'll find and out. With, I'll find out. And with that, I'll turn it over back to my talented and gifted friend, Jerry Green. Oh, thanks, Chris. So we're going to talk about this story after a few messages from some of our friends. Hello, I'm Pat Sampson. And I would like to invite you to join me on my podcast, The Longbox Crusade. On this podcast, I'm reading through my 20-plus longboxes that I have stored away in my basement. On each episode, I will select a random issue from my collection and take a very highbrow, thoughtful approach to examining these truly American art forms that help to shape our popular culture. Oh, I like comics, too. Uh, can I get a comic out of my long box that syncs up with the month and year of the comic from your long box and chat about that, too? Oh, oh and video games. Can we talk about games? Or, or maybe James Bond, too. I love James Bond. <sighs> Fine. 
Jared Elbrick, a.k.a. the Yard Sale Artist, we can add some of your comics and enthusiasm to the show. It might help get a deeper introspection of... Did someone say James Bond? I love James Bond, and I love comics, too. I can bring a comic from my lawn box to sync up with you guys. I also love movies and music, even news stories that tie into the time period that match the comic books we review. Uh, this is what I get for inviting both the Albrecht brothers into my show. Jason, how the heck can we fit all that into my deeply intellectual review of... Well, you know what? Fine. Let's do it. Let's cram it all into one podcast. Join us on the Longbox Crusade, folks. We'll bounce around in time from issue to issue, pulled randomly from my Longboxes, and the Alpert Brothers will bring along issues with the same month and year cover date. We'll talk about the comics and the time period they come from, including... World news of that time. Top 40 music chart toppers. Movies, both good and bad. Maybe even some favorite recipes. Whatever I think is funny. We'll probably have to suffer through things that Jared thinks are funny. We'll jam it all into one pop culture extravaganza, examining the comics in my longbox and the time period surrounding them. Join us for a wild ride through time on the Longbox Crusade podcast as we attempt to read them all. What's in your longbox? Welcome back. Here is the story of Batman, Death and the City. Now, there are several stories in these books, so some are connected, others are slightly connected, and I'm going to recap them out of order uh, so they make a little bit more sense and we'll, we'll, we can talk about them together. So the first uh, story we're going to talk about is called Double Talk. Batman hears of an anonymous call to the GCPD. Selina is in trouble in a Gotham building. He goes there and finds that it's just a dummy of Selina, which explodes. As he escapes the building, he runs into Scarface, who was supposed to have been destroyed along with his partner Arnold Wesker a few issues ago. Scarface explodes too. That's two explosions pretty quick. The GCPD exhumes Wesker's grave, but his body is gone. Bruce goes undercover as Lefty Knox with a mechanical hand and he goes to a meeting of underworld types at the Iceberg Lounge. Scarface is there and addresses the crowd sitting on Wesker's lap. However, the dead body of Wesker is kicked over, revealing the new ventriloquist, the lovely and seductive Sugar. Scarface wants to take over Gotham, but knows he has to get rid of Batman first. He believes that the Bat is in disguise in this very room. Since he doesn't know who is Batman, he decides he wants to kill them all. Bruce has to think fast and so knocks out the lights with a hidden batarang and emerges dressed as the Bat. In the chaos, Batman is able to grab Sugar and Scarface. It turns out that Sugar had been killed and resurrected as well. Batman gets the dummy away from Sugar. She seems to snap out of a trance and says Scarface was controlling her. It's all a gag, however. She has rigged Scarface to explode, which he does. Both escape, and Sugar heads to her hideout, and we see that she has a number of Scarface dolls. That's the end of Double Talk. Now, in the story Kind of Like Family, 
Harley Quinn has had her Arkham Asylum parole hearing, but is rejected due to Arkham board member Bruce Wayne's vote. He votes that she should stay in prison. As she's brought back to her cell, she's kidnapped and escaped by a female guard. She's taken to Scarface and Sugar's hideout. They want her help putting the Sabatino and Cot crime families out of business. They head out and are about to enter a building when Harley, in full costume, punches her captors and goes into the building. She disables the true crime lords inside and calls Commissioner Gordon, who informs Batman of the shenanigans. Scarface Sugar and their henchwoman arrive and try to kill Harley. She plays for time until Batman arrives. Together, the two force Sugar and Scarface into the alleyway where the GCPD arrive. She uses the exploding Scarface doll and a gun to steal a cop car and get away. Batman returns Harley to Arkham. She goes willingly. On the way, Harley tells him of meeting Arnold Wesker in the asylum. He was kind to her, and she resented what Sugar had been doing. Two days later, at a surprise parole hearing, Bruce Wayne changes his vote and Harley can leave Arkham Asylum on parole. The end. So, what'd you think about these two, Chris? Oh, well, Jerry, I'll tell you up front. Um, people who know me know that Arnold Wesker or Ventriloquist isn't my favorite villain. In uh, here, even replacing this ventriloquist, uh, Arnold Wesker, with uh, Peyton Riley, uh, called Sugar here, mm-hmm. it d- does a complete 180. You know, we, we had the short little man, and you could not get more different than the appearance of Arnold Wesker than you could with Peyton Riley here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I yeah, thought that was definitely. really odd. Uh, you know, that said, one, th- one element of the story I did like was we had this array of identities that Batman had when he goes undercover. Mm-hmm. And I liked this Lefty Knox in this appearance and how he was uh, treated in the underworld. And when he enters the B- Iceberg Lounge, it's a nice scene where uh, Penguin knows his face and knows him even by name and says, ah, here's here's at least a bad guy I can trust. You know? and I, <laughs> yeah. thought, I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Uh, one of the things, though, that I really wasn't sure about uh, were two things. In the Harley sequence, we had she was wearing an ID number on on her prison uniform that was three eight one nine nine three, and I thought that could have been a date, March eight nineteen ninety three. So I did some research, and I could not find anything for the life of me what that significance was. There was no uh, an air an airing of a Harley Quinn appearance that originally aired from Batman the Animated TV series. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find anything related to a comic book. Maybe somebody could write into the show and we'll give the address afterward if they know what that significance is, if any, to uh, her ID number. One other element here, Harley seemingly was knocked out when she was um, taken away and then loaded into an ambulance. But as they're busting through the gate, she seems to be conscious and sitting upright. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing you know, she's she's passed out again on, on uh, the ventriloquist's bed. And I'm wondering what happened there. Mm-hmm. Another element I wasn't sure about was Bruce voting with the way he did for the release and parole. Granted, she gave a nice touching explanation as to her reformity and the actions that she did. Was this just enough, though, for her to be changed in Bruce's eyes, in my opinion, and I just am not quite sure. It made for a nice story, mm-hmm. 
but I just don't know if that was a true and character moment for Bruce. What did you think? Yeah, I see what you mean. I mean, for me, I'm a I'm a Harley Quinn fan, and and I, you know, it's fan service for her to get out of prison and to get on Bruce's good side and and things like that. It makes me feel good about the character, you know, that I that I otherwise like quite a bit. But you're absolutely right. It seems a little out of out of character for Bruce. I mean, she's still a dangerous criminal. And although she did in this case prove that she uh, has some um, morality and understands that she, you know, can't be on the run forever and wants to stop this uh, from going on. I, 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 the idea of sugar, she, her as ventriloquist, it's a little confusing to me in terms of, you know, what is going on here? Why did she all of a sudden take over the ventriloquist mantle? Uh, it's, it's not really very clear. Somehow she's got a whole series of ventriloquist dolls that are always rigged to explode and she's always got another one. Uh, the, the ventriloquist, uh, Scarface has um, has been destroyed or had been destroyed earlier and has some cracks in his face and she seems to have similar wounds on her face over her uh, right eye that she covers with her hair and so it seems like there's a connection between the two somehow but it's not really clear what that is and uh, at least in this story so uh, I was a little taken aback I thought the first tale. Uh, was a little sudden. It ended a little suddenly. This one was uh, a little better. Uh, just to, you know, let folks know these are not, uh, um, you know, these, these books are not one right after the other. They're not consecutive in the series. They're separated. So I can only imagine what people, as they were reading these in real time, uh, were thinking. It probably was very kind of confusing and disappointing. Sure. Jerry, I mentioned how I feel about the ventriloquist, be it uh, Arnold Wesker controlling uh, Scarface or be it Peyton Riley. Mm-hmm. Is does the ventriloquist villain do anything for you with Batman Rogues lore? I mean, would you rate this somewhere in the middle of being a fan, or does it even crack your top ten Rogues list? Would no, you say it wouldn't crack my top ten Rogues? No, definitely not. He's fine. I, I mean, I don't have a oh no, it's the ventriloquist, and you know, I. I <laughs> My uh, whenever I think of the ventriloquist, I think of the Secret Six Gail Simone run, which sure. had had a, a ventriloquist that I think most people really did not like. Uh, I thought it was kind of funny. I thought it was a little uh, saucy, uh, much a, a much a little racier ventriloquist than Arnold or Sugar. Uh, was that the Shauna Belzer version that was introduced in the New Fifty Two Batgirl? Uh, it might have. been. Been. I didn't yeah. read that Batgirl, so I think uh, I think it was uh, a very slim, a very very thin woman. That sounds like Shauna Belzer. Yeah, yeah that version. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, you know, I I, I like Secret Six. I think uh, that that um, um, you know version of Secret Six. I think more than most people did. So uh, and Ventriloquist was in it, so I have a little bit of history with the character, but definitely not a top ten. Okay. Did it matter to you one way or the other between Arnold Wesker and I guess what I'm asking you mm. backhandedly is do you think the Peyton Riley character mm, 
was over-sexualized in her mm. appearance. I think or it, just, just pushed the envelope enough or just was right on that line, maybe. Yeah, I think it was on the line. It didn't bother me so much. Uh, I think in the, in the Harley story, she was definitely uh, a little more... Um, appropriately dressed. Uh, in the penguin story, you know, with the lefty knocks, I think she was a little, a little sexier. Um, and I assumed it was to, to draw the contrast between her and Wesker, you know, because, she, you know, he was an old man, kind of a decrepit, kind of goofy looking man, where she is like this sexy young thing, you know. So that's what I assumed. It was just to draw the contrast. Right. One of the points, though, I do have to give credit to Dean with the way he wrote the character. Mm -hmm. This is a crafty villain when written properly. And right out of the gate, she surmises that Batman's in this room somewhere in disguise. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a brilliant masterstroke. And all of a sudden, we get this sudden interrogation, and there you can feel the tension within the panels of, like, oh, no, is Batman's cover going to be blown? Um, And how is this scene going to play out? I thought that was really well executed. Yeah. I do think that uh, Lefty Knox got into his Batman gear pretty darn fast. That's a good point. Didn't he change clothes with the, <laughs> yeah. this uh, this uh, fake claw on the one hand and all? And that was that was pretty pretty clever. One thing I did like, I have to give some credit here, was Kramer's artwork in the Harley Quinn story because yeah. I thought she had some great great facial expressions. Mm-hmm. This is a really expressive. Of Harley, this is a vivacious Harley. This is the Harley I think most Harley fans love. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't. I wouldn't have thought. Uh, the, you know, when you think of you know great Harley stories, and uh, putting that with uh, Kramer's art, you don't necessarily hear too much about it. But I thought this was a great uh, chapter and some great Harley artwork here in this. I agree. She's in the bodysuit, uh, the red and black bodysuit with the jester hat on. You know, not not the blonde hair. And I think, like you say, her facial expressions, I'm looking at them right now, they're very expressive. Very expressive. Yeah, very nimble, very gymnastic. Yeah, Mm -hmm. just just very bouncing off the walls. This is the Harley Quinn. I think, you know, when when you think that character coming to mind and coming to life, it really springs to life as a can in a comic that was right there. Yeah, you can see why she became so popular because, you know, that stories like this and there and better ones. Um, this isn't, I don't think, the best Harley story out there, but, uh, you know, you can definitely see the seed of something big is coming. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. So do you have anything else to say about this story? No, I think I got it all out in the open. Thank Fantastic. you, friend. You got it. You got it, Chris. So the next one that we're going to talk about is called Shark Bite. There's a costume party on Bruce Wayne's yacht, and Riddler has been invited. Also at the party is Bruce's old friend, Matthew Atkins, who has been drinking again. Matthew goes outside of the boat. Atkins' girlfriend, Helen Iverson, screams, he's fallen overboard. Bruce jumps into the water after him, but sharks are attacking. Bruce is too late. Matthew is dead. Riddler, the P.I., is on the news, announcing that it was all an accident and there was no foul play. Bruce isn't so sure. He finds a discrepancy in the pattern of shark bites on Matthew's body and determines that the death was set up. Bruce looks into Matthew's past and finds that he owned a number of art galleries and was partnered with his girlfriend, Helen Iverson. Bruce wonders how Matthew was getting his money. 
He looks into it some more and finds that he was dealing in the antiquities black market. Real relics were being stolen and replaced by fakes. He goes to the Gothi Museum to look around. He hears a scream and finds Riddler unconscious. Riddler's earlier announcement of accidental death was a ruse so the killer wouldn't realize he was on to him. Batman is attacked by a man in a Polynesian outfit who's a very capable fighter. Riddler awakens and saves Batman by shooting the attacker with a burning arrow. The fiend is engulfed in flames. Batman puts him out. Batman realizes that the bad guy is the museum's restoration manager who creates the fake artifacts and is in league with Helen Iverson and Matthew was getting greedy about this scheme. And they decided, the two decided, that they had to bump Matthew off. The end. All right, buddy, what would you think about this one? You know, this this was another Riddler story where here, here he is with a P.I. bit, but I really like the setting on the onset, and mm-hmm. I was trying to really visualize this, and I almost wish this had been adapted to a Batman the Animated Series episode mm-hmm. because I thought it was that good. I think mm-hmm. they had a lot of things to play with here that could have been uh, incorporated well for a 30-minute episode. Mm-hmm. We had the setting with the costume party. I think there could have been some nice exchanges there. Uh, one of the things that I did like was the Batman detective work. He analyzes the paper stock for a clue. I thought that was a really nice touch. And when was the last time we saw Batman really scrutinizing a piece of evidence and just yeah. connecting the dots like that? I really, really like that element. Mm-hmm. It had somewhat of a sad ending. I think not all of the Batman the Animated Series you know, were all... You know, they did have some, you know, more somber tones. Not nothing too serious, but just too somber, I think, is an effective word. Decent story, not maybe the best one of the volume, but Mm -hmm. I thought it was, I thought it was pretty good. Yeah. So I, one thing I like about, I like Riddler as a private investigator. And in this case, uh, you know, we saw in our last episode, we talked about um, Riddler as a PI. And here, He's a little more clever than he was last time. He kind of says, oh, well, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. You know, this wasn't a real killing. Uh, But he's kidding. And Batman is kind of saying, oh, Riddler, you're a terrible detective. But Riddler is is pretty sharp. And I I like the fact his little misdirection here. It's a little more clever. I I, I really like the Riddler as a a villain. So, and, And in this case, there's something about Riddler and and Penguin when they're both kind of you know penguin is the the club owner and riddler is the pi and they're both trying to at least give the illusion of being um you know straightforward citizens uh but you know they can always be uh drawn to the dark side and and i really think that's a much more interesting uh, characterization of, of Riddler and Penguin, uh, than just the, you know, they're bad guys and they're just gonna do some crazy thing like they're, like they're the Joker, right? That's a, they're different. And I like how they show that in this series of stories. And there's one thing about the art in here that I, I, I just, and I, I'm looking at it now and I can't get it out of my head. There's a, there's, when Batman is carrying, uh, uh, Matthew out of the water. He's, you know, kind of holding him in his arms. And there's just something very golden age about this little tiny panel. And it just looks so cool to me. It's, uh, but, 
Mm-hmm. That's a really good point, Jerry. You know, and I think it, Golden Age is a really good way to put it. You know, this this sort of had a whole Golden Age flavor because you saw Bruce Wayne, I think, being more social mm-hmm. or going to more social gatherings in in in, in stories of that time period, mm-hmm. where you really don't see that element too much anymore. And I think that's an excellent point. And I really got the flavor of it. And I mean, here's Bruce Wayne. And I think he's dressed as Zorro of all people for the costume party. Right. I mean, you know, how Golden Age is, is, is that for crying out loud? And the brilliant opening panel too, where Riddler yeah. spots him and he says, mm-hmm. "I know who you are," you know, and we don't really know, you, you know, your costume doesn't fool me. I know it's you, Bruce. Wayne, and how, how nice was that? Because yeah. we really don't see what it is until the next page. And how cool would it be to go to a costume party where everybody's dressed up like a like a Gotham rogue or that somebody? Would be great. Like, wouldn't that be cool? So yeah. yeah, this this was this was a really nice touch, and I think you really hit the nail on the head with that uh, Golden Age illusion. Brilliant. And and the first page is you know Bruce arriving, and you see Riddler, and then you see who you assume is is Catwoman, Harley, and Ivy. But it's really just Gothamites in costume, except for, of course, Riddler. And yes. it's, it's just like this sudden, uh-oh, what's going on here? Oh, it's a costume party. Right, you're drawn into the story right away, right yeah. out of the gate. Yeah, definitely. So I, I like the art in this, you know, mostly. It's a little heavy-handed, but the colors are nice. The colors are uh, varied. There's purples and reds, and it changes throughout the story as it goes through. So I like that. Uh, and and I think you touched on something uh, very good about it being a somber kind of story. Bat, you know, Bruce's friend uh, is dead, and you you get that feeling that he's sad about it. Yes, absolutely. And it's not it's it's played just as you would hope it would play out. It's it's not heavy handed. Mm-hmm. It's it's done matter of factly, and you can get some emotional resonance and impact, mm-hmm. but nothing. Uh, uh, too tawdry or, or, or just being too over clever with how it's presented. Yeah. What do you think about the, the tiki torch bad guy? I thought that was unusual. It was something I hadn't necessarily seen before in a comic, mm-hmm. per se. Uh, I thought it was kind of clever how it played out. I did like the Rudler doing his own detective work, and he's brilliant enough to ascertain where he can find the, the, the rogues. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, he's, he's still a capable fighter. And Riddler's characterization is like, hey, I want to get even with these guys here. And, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, hold me back. But Batman is, you know, sworn to do his due diligence yeah. and everything like that. And I thought it was really good. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. Okay. So uh, right now we're going to take a little break. And we will come back with the rest of the stories in this trade. See you in a few minutes after these words from some of our friends. Warlord Worlds, a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of Mike Grell, including Warlord, John Sable, Star Slayer, Shaman's Tears, and Green Arrow. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. We hope you'll join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in the many excellent comics from writer and artist Mike Grell. Warlord Worlds is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Find us at warlordworlds.com.
Welcome back. So Chris and I will continue talking about Batman, Death in the City. This next story we're going to talk about is called Siege, and it's two issues long. There's a peace conference being held between the heads of a few warring countries at Wayne Tower. Bruce and Tim Drake are in attendance. Tim heads down the hall in the, and goes to the elevator uh, to go to the banquet room for some food, and he notices that there's some strange goop on the wall. He realizes too late that this goop is dangerous. Explosions begin to rip through the building. Bruce helps evacuate the bigwigs down the emergency stairs while covertly on the line with Tim. He directs Tim to a special room in the building and gets on his Robin gear. The GCPD arrive and surround the building. A transmission comes from inside, from someone calling himself Vox. He wants to kill all the country representatives to make them pay for the occupation and crimes against the people of the country Jalib. He will destroy Wayne Tower as a symbol. Bruce has pinpointed the location of Vox's transmission and sends Tim to get him. Bruce uses the building's intercom system as Batman to direct Vox, to distract Vox, I should say, while Tim makes his way to him, which he does. Vox sprays him with the explosive goop along with a blasting cap to set it all off. The goop hardens, making Tim's arm useless. Vox is wounded but gets away. Bruce directs Tim to a closet where he uses a blowtorch to free the blasting cap just before Vox sets it to explode. Bruce is able to slip away from the world leaders and gets into Batman gear. He finds Vox and sends him to drop the and gets him to drop the detonator that would have destroyed the building. Vox goes out the window and Batman saves him. Vox punches him and Batman releases him and Vox falls to his gruesome death. The end. <laughs> What'd you think about that one? Well, first off, let me go with the artwork. Andy Clark did the artwork for these two uh, chapters and. I thought it was a really distinctive style. A lot of times when we're going through these trade paperbacks, you can notice a slight drop off drastically or, you know, a, a bump in elevation with a quality. This was different, but not in as much as it would take you out of the story. Clark does a really good job. I liked his facial expressions, and I noticed when you go through this and you turn page after page, you notice that the faces of the people at the party are all turned at these subtle angles. You rarely get a full-on shot of anybody. There is one of Bruce in one panel, but beyond that, it's like you're actually panning when you're in a crowded room. You're never really seeing too many people in a full-on shot unless they're addressing you or you're talking to to them. I thought that was really unique and distinctive. Okay, for the story itself, you know, it's hard to, you know, compare like a high-rise terror situation without thinking of the movie Die Hard. I hated that. I tried to distance myself from letting my mind go there. We had some good elements. We had Bruce trying to think of a way to outbox this villain. Tim was in full Tim mode. He notices something off right away, and they're all working together to get to the bottom of this. There were some cute moments. There were moments of tension. This was a decent story, but it wasn't one of my favorites in the volume. How about you? 
So I, I agree. I, I think Vox is I, – I really have no idea what he was up to. He, he kind of contradicted his own uh, – you know, what he was what he was on about. He was going to kill everybody, and, you know, and it, he was on one side but was going to kill everybody. I, it was a little confusing. I didn't think he was a particularly good bad guy. I thought you, you make a really good comment about the art. It is – it's – it's definitely different, and it's definitely there's one scene in particular uh, early on when Bruce is, you know, they're in the room with all the diplomats. Uh, there's sun coming through the window, and the floor is kind of glowing, and it almost looks like all the characters are kind of floating above the floor a little. It's it's really pretty. I do think that the drawing of the bodies. Uh, when when they do show full figured uh, people is a little off. The bodies, the 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 trunk, the you know the the chest and the the, the jackets seem a lot bigger than the legs and feet would imply. They almost look like kind of like like robots or something um, in in three piece suits. Uh, so that kind of takes me out, but like you said, there aren't too many scenes of full body shots, and my guess is that may be why. It's just, the, the full bodies look a little clumsy to me. Did you notice anything like that? Yeah, I thought the heads weren't necessarily proportioned to the body in some places, but I gave it a pass. Uh, I thought the faces were a little wide in some areas. I thought... Maybe Clark was trying to get in some more facial features, perhaps, to kind of make each person distinctive. But in doing so, you sacrifice some proportionate to the 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 the, the, the head to the body. Mm. Uh, you know, I gave it I gave it a pass. Mm. One thing I did like one of the elements here is like Bruce knows the intricacies of this building in and out. He knows yeah. where there's a torch. He knows where there's a spare costume. He knows what floor this is, where that is, and I, I really like the mastermind of how this played out. There was a good there's some good cat and mouse here, as you would hope would be told in a in a story where you don't want to see things you've seen before. And there were some elements here to that. I don't want to necessarily say I I didn't like this story, but I just don't think it was as strong as some of the others. I agree. I agree. Now, you know, having, you know, since I had just said that about the bodies in the suits, I do want to point out there is a really good drawing of Tim Drake when he gets on his Robin suit. I, you know, he's, it's shot from below looking up at him and he, he looks fantastic, uh, in, uh, dressed as Robin. So I want to give a shout out to that, but yeah, I, I have to agree with you. This is, this is a fine story, but, you know, not fantastic, I didn't think. Okay. That's all I had on this one. Yeah, same here. Did so, you have anything else? Okay. No, that's good. Well, we'll move on. The next story is called Triage. The unrecognizable body of Sherman Shockley, alias the shark, is found wrapped in a cloth and mostly eaten by sharks. Sherman is part of the terrible trio, who are three crazy crooks, using animal personas. Shackley is the shark, Fisk as a fox, and Vulper as a vulture. They are able to identify Sherman by his teeth, which are on the water's floor. The trio was back in Gotham on the run, and they were looking for protection. Alfred tells Bruce that to find the other two members, he might look for the fox underground. Batman goes to an abandoned subway station where he does find Fisk. The two are trapped in the subway room by a man calling himself the Fourth Man, who sets wolves on the two. 
Batman fights them off, but the fourth man explodes the place with dynamite. Batman escapes, and Fisk is in the hospital, in stable condition. The third of the trio, Volper, had been in police custody, but has disappeared. Batman goes to the Gotham City Avery, Aviary and finds Volper tied up by the fourth man, who then sends vultures to eat Volper alive. Batman arrives and saves Volper. Batman realizes that the fourth man is actually Sherman Shackley, who faked his own death by pulling out his teeth. Lucky for Sherman, sharks have many sets of teeth that keep growing back. The two fight, and Shackley falls from a height, disabling him. Shackley apparently had a psychotic break due to some drug abuse. He is sent to Arkham, where he runs into Great White Shark, who doesn't take too kindly to another shark in his tank. (laughs) Well said. What do you think about this one? Okay, this is uh, an issue that... Had the terrible trio. This is and this as a kid, I really liked these guys. But I, I, I was coming at it from more of the uh, golden age. You know, their first appearance was in Detective Comics two fifty three way back in the day. I think they only had two appearances, and they were drawn very cartoony back then. Um, the Vulture had the, like the, this full on eagle thing. Uh, the shark looked like this purple shark head, and the fox literally had you know the orange head of a fox and you know they committed crimes you know based on air sea and land depending on that there was i think there were the motif and you had different versions that appeared throughout um i think in um batman the animated series they were like these uh frustrated dudes who just basically wore regular common masks uh in the batman there was one and i think uh, batman brave and bold they had another incarnation the artwork here, this was Andy Clark who did the art on this one. Uh, Roy McGraw was, this was his own lone writing one for A32. Mm-hmm. The art I thought was very good and I thought it had a real Paul Galassi feel to it. Mm. Um, Gordon really looked weathered here and he looked like he was drawn to be almost like Gary Oldman weathered here, just like the Commissioner Gordon. And that, that really uh, got me into the mood of the story. As the characters were portrayed here, there wasn't that true sense of menace. This was almost sort of behind-the-scenes thing, and when we got to the end where we had Great White Shark as as being the real baddie in this issue, mm-hmm. it kind of kind of took me out of it, and I, I really didn't care for this, because this was sort of trying to establish this name Rogue that, in my memory, really didn't take off or go anywhere, at least mm-hmm. to me, having this... Uh, from what little memory I have of this time period, I mean, I, I've read so many comics, and this was one era that, you know, I, I was so one and done with a couple of these stories back then that I, I, I wanted to like this more than it, it it did, and I just didn't really care for it as much as I had hoped. How about you? Yeah, yeah I, I felt the same. I You know, isn't – we recently did a story that Great White Shark was trying to run all of uh, Gotham crime – uh, out of his cell at Arkham, right? So here we yes. are again. He's back, and now it's like they're reminding us. Remember, Great White? He's he's around. He's coming now. Yeah, and Jerry, I've always read these comics when they came out. For the life of me, I didn't even remember him doing all this. You yeah. know, so it, it it just didn't have that weight and impact that I think it was trying to go for back then. Yep, yep. Now, uh, I you know, in recent memory. 
the terrible trio. I don't know if you were reading Gotham Academy, but they had uh, young kids who were acting as the terrible trio in that story. So that's right. (laughs) Yes. I kind of like that. So I, I don't think it was particularly well done here. I don't think they're, they're really a great bunch of bad guys, but you know, I guess it's interesting enough kind of, but I have to, the art in this one is is very good. It's um, it's a little lighter touch with the lines, even though that it's a dark. It's a darker um, kind of art style, like a moodier uh, art style. But uh, it's it's very uh, a little bit of a lighter touch with all the lines. So I, I did like uh, the art in here and the colors. There are some panels in particular where um, Batman uh, he's being attacked by um, uh, Fisk and uh, he's he kind of throws Fisk and it's just the way the colors and there's a flashlight shining on his arm and you can see the muscles in his arm and there's pretty blues and it's it's just a nice little panel so I I, I do like the art in this but uh, it's just okay Batman story he wins great you know what's next. <laughs> Right, right. So do you have anything else about this one? That's all I had for that one. All right. Here we go with the last one, and it's called Trust. A theater burns in Gotham. The show that was being held was by the magician Ivar Loxess. His assistant is locked in a trick box, but can't get out. Batman arrives and frees her. She has a gag around her mouth. Batman pulls off the gag, but she's dead. Batman and Commissioner Gordon uh, questioned Loxius. There have been several accidents at his shows recently, and audiences are growing, anxious to see some unexpected carnage. The dead assistant is Katie Michaels, a friend of Zatanna's. Bruce lets Zatanna know her friend is dead and asks for her help sorting out what happened. They see the video of the show provided by Loxius, and realized that Katie was struggling before she was put in the box. She had a deathly tree nut allergy, and Batman analyzes his glove that he used to take the gag off her. There's walnut oil on it. She was poisoned before the fire ever began. The two visit Ivar Loxius at a theater and accuse him of killing Katie and starting the fire. He said that he was creating death to draw a larger crowd. Loxius unexpectedly shoots Zatanna in the throat so she can't speak her spells and traps Batman in a trick chair and electrocutes him. He puts the injured Zatanna into a water tank. It turns out it isn't Ivar Loxus, the magician at all, but Joker. Joker recalls how he met the real Ivar Loxus, who nursed him back to health after a nasty fall. Joker killed Ivar and took his persona. Batman is able to free himself from the trick chair and Joker escapes down a trap door saying the show must go on. Batman frees Zatanna who saved and healed herself by writing a help me spell in her own blood on the roof of the water trap. Zatanna is brought back to Wayne Manor where Bruce and Alfred give her a chance to sleep off her trauma. When she wakes they realize Joker is still up to something and they go to Ivor's house to find clues. They find some writing on the shower stall wall with a turn on the hot water and the steam displays the writing. And it tells them to go to an abandoned church. 
Batman and Zatanna go to the church, and Joker is in a grim reaper outfit in front of a gigantic crowd of Gotham seediest, who are expecting a secret and dangerous Ivar Loxius underground show. What they get instead is a cloud of Joker toxin. Batman and Zatanna arrive. Zatanna disables the toxin and turns the grinning crowd into vampire bats who bite Joker. She also disables Joker by forcing him to laugh uncontrollably. They capture the crown prince of crime and Bruce forgives Zatanna for her quote-unquote past misdeeds. The end. What did you think? Well, Jerry, I'll get to the stuff I really liked about this first. We had a nice flashback scene, and this occurred where we see Zatanna's father, Zatara, was performing at young Bruce's party, and this was shortly after his parents died. That had a real nice feel to it. And in this scene, we see that Bruce and Zatanna are fairly close in age because in prior stories being told, we really weren't sure how the age difference played out or what the first meeting with Bruce and Zatara, Zatanna's father, was. Mm -hmm. In one version, I think I recall Bruce seeks out Zatara when he's already uh, – Bruce is like, I think, uh, college age, and he's, yeah. he's seeking him out to be his master. And when when I saw that story, I think I want to see that uh, Zatanna was significantly younger than Bruce, not by much, but maybe – yeah, at least at least five six years, mm -hmm. where I think she might have had some um, affection towards him, but there was just sort of an age gap. Mm -hmm. Here in this story, we see that they're much much more closer in age, and there's a tender moment where Bruce just is not having anything to do with his own party. He's very frustrated. He's very upset, and here's Zatanna going out to see him, and she pulls this magic trick with trying to brighten his mood in some way just to try to get a smile on this young man's distraught face. Yeah. And I thought that was really, really touching. Mm -hmm. Another element that I really liked in the story was Zatanna saying that we're, and we never get, you know, the full illusion, but we presume this is the events that happened in identity crisis yeah. that Zatanna saying that, that the mind wipe or what this action was, was the worst mistake in her life mm -hmm. and we finally get some closure and I think this is something that fans of the Batman character and fans or haters of Zatanna mm -hmm. for, for this character were really wanting this moment to happen they wanted the mea culpa they wanted the apology for the events of Identity Crisis and here it happened in this issue and I think this is something which may be somewhat forgotten. We still think of the bad, but we don't think of the penance and we don't think of the forgiving and we don't think of the uh, I'm sorry when we get to this stuff. Mm -hmm. For me, those were the better scenes of the issue. Mm -hmm. What I'm not sure about, the whole thing with Joker posing as Loxius just sort of felt kind of contrived to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I just thought, how how can he take his, manifest his appearance just down to a T where Batman didn't even figure this out? Now, I can kind of – I was so trying to buy it, but it, I just didn't really think that this could have been really pulled off if it was done in real life. There was a scene where Batman escapes from metal shackles, but we don't, really don't know how. He busts through them, and I thought that seemed kind of really forced. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I did like with respect to the artwork, we did have – an excellent full page, and this was uh, Don Kramer who did the pencils on this. He did this whole 
big full page of Batman punching Joker in the jaw with Zatanna in the background, and I just thought that was really masterfully done. So, Jerry, I covered all my bases with with this these two issues. What did you think on this? Well, I have to agree with you about the uh, uh, him bust Batman busting out of the chair. It's like, yeah, well, it's kind of a trick chair, so there'll be a weakness, and it's like, oh, okay, I guess he found it. I, I think uh, a couple of things. I did like the art, particularly in 833. I thought the young Zatanna, the coloring on on her was really well done on her skin. There was a lot of really good um, gradations of color and darkness and light that I really, really liked. And uh, also in the opening fire scene in the theater, I think the colors were beautiful, very stunning and very rich. And, and I did like that. It, it didn't really hold out through the whole book. You know, some parts were excellent and some were a little less. There's uh, one of the other good ones was uh, Bruce sitting, you know, as you, you mentioned, he's kind of uh, distraught and has, you know, gone off to sit by a stream while a party's going on and he's just sitting by a tree looking into the water it's a very pretty uh little bucolic scene there um i think that the you know we had just covered identity crisis a couple of uh episodes ago maybe maybe more than a couple now but you know it's kind of in our in our heads uh, i i'm not a hundred percent sure if somebody reading this uh, would really, you know, if, especially if they just picked it up, would really understand what the heck the conflict between Batman and Zatanna is. Um, it's That's an excellent point because we really don't have the elephant in room fully addressed. Yeah. We really don't know what the events were. It would have helped just to get some type of editorial note or something in the margin. Mm-hmm. I, I felt really bad about that. One thing I did like is that in a sense, we did have something of a cliffhanger here, and I do like when when stories give us that. You know, Zantana is incapacitated where she can't speak, and here's her big thing, and then the next thing we know, she's in this Harry Houdini water trap, and it's like, what's going to happen? I, I really like how that element played out. Yeah. But it, 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 at the sacrifice of something that really took us a huge contrivance to from get to point A to point B mm-hmm. – Ah, it's sort of offset for me. It's, I just wanted to like one more element than the other, but it, it, the one good thing was taken aback by the one thing I really didn't care for. And I, it just uh, yeah. it frustrated me so when I read this. Yep. Now, I there's a couple of cool things in, in this. Uh, I, I thought that uh, Loxius, however you pronounce his name, Joker – when uh, he's in the theater and when he shoots uh, Zatanna and captures Batman, he's wearing what looks to be kind of a Watchman T-shirt. Yes, I thought that was funny. I don't know; it just struck me as kind of kind of uh, kind of humorous. Another thing, and it, this is similar in all of these stories, the lettering well, in narration. Yeah, we're actually going to make a, a comment about the lettering of, of a book. The lettering of the narration is almost in like an Art Deco font. And I really, really liked it. I thought it was uh, very classical. gave it a very uh, little bit of a classy edge. And I really liked that about it. Uh, and just, I, I like the character. You, you mentioned before about people that really don't like Zatanna. I like her as a character. And I like her with Bruce. But that magic thing where she talks backwards and they force me to read her speech backwards, that really ticks me off. I really don't like that. 
Does that bother you? Am I the only person that bothers you? You might be the only person, Jerry, because I, <laughs> you know, I, I know there's, there's, uh, it's something that I've always grown accustomed to, you know, ever since, you know, I, I was introduced to the character, uh, when I was reading comics back in the day, they, they reprinted, um, over the 100-page issues in the 70s, uh, Zatanna's uh, Search for Her Father, and these were some stories that were done over, spread out over Detective Comics, which culminated in Justice League. And that's when I first found the character, and you know, that's something I just, I just sort of, I, I sort of went along with it. What could I say? You know, I, I could see how it would bother somebody, I guess. But you know, hey, to each his own. Yeah, you know, but that's yeah. something that never really bothered me. You know, it's it's, it's one of those things. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's it's not that it. Uh, it wouldn't work. Obviously, it wouldn't work. But uh, it it forces me to read backwards, and I I feel compelled to like what is oh Batman stop oh I get it you know but I don't know that's just that's just a little bit of pet peeve from my side. Well, you know, one thing I do want to commend you though on was just bringing up the lettering because that's something I always was conscious of, but I did want to I don't I never put the note in my with my things, and yeah, it really did was evocative with, mm-hmm. with the lettering and that Art Deco feel. It took me a second or two to get into it, mm-hmm. but once you're there, you're really immersed. I mean, this is this is something that shouldn't be understated when, when you t- you break it, because this lettering is evocative of a mood, and when you're into this mood, mm-hmm. it, it changes the feel of a city, the feel of the background, the feel and the vibe of what you're getting into. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really cool, because this is a Gotham City which isn't necessarily the dark, murky, mm-hmm. you know, as some of the other pr- previous trades that we've looked at on this show mm-hmm. have done. This is, this is a sort of a different Gotham City. I'm not saying this is a time crime-free city, but this is far from just this slum that we see that you'd, you'd think Gotham was comprised of in some of the previous material we've covered. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Gotham seems like a place you could live in here, and it's all part of that. That's a great point. Absolutely. So, on whole, uh, from all of these stories, where would you put this in terms of a, of a rating? Jerry, you know, I knew this question was coming and here's how I'm going to come at this. Let's say you go out to a new buffet restaurant. Mm-hmm. Okay. Remember when they used to call them smorgasbords too? Oh yeah. Remember, oh, remember yeah. you see yeah, the little sure neon do. sign and they used to say <laughs> smorgasbord. You don't see those. I don't know what happened to those. What signs? happened to smorgasbords? I mean, what happened to smorgasbord? Yeah, exactly. <sighs> now you go to these buffet places. Okay. So you go to a new buffet restaurant and they got salad, and it's a nice salad. You know, you know what you're going to expect with a salad, but it's a nice salad. You try some mm-hmm. soup, you know what you're going to expect with soup, and it's good soup. Mm-hmm. And then you get your entree, and you get your, your meat, and maybe some fish, and it's good. And you know, and then you try some vegetables, and the vegetables are all really good. And then you get dessert, and you get a nice thing, and it's really, really good. And that's how I felt with the last tray that we looked at. Mm-hmm. Now we come to this one, and it's it's like um, you think, well. Uh, you're not going to go back to that restaurant you went to so soon, but here is there's a knock on your door and it's it's one of your friends and he says, "Hey, you know, let's go catch up. I haven't seen you in a few weeks. Why don't we go out for a bite to eat?" And the next thing you know, he's pulling into the uh, parking lot of the restaurant you were just at. Uh. And you think, "Ah, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> this is going to be good, but I've kind of already went down this road before, yeah. you know, and stuff like." And that's a lot with way I felt with this trade paperback because this was not quite as magical or special as the previous one we looked at. Mm-hmm. These were all decent stories, 
But there were a few elements here that I just didn't care for that took me out of this. Mm-hmm. To wit, you know, we had a ventriloquist story. Mm-hmm. And already, if you've read some current of the Batman stuff, we know that uh, Wesker was most recently seen in Batman War of Jokes and Riddles. You know, and you, if you know this coming into it, you sort of feel like taken out, whereas the previous volume of work, these were good standalone stories where you could read them, and they weren't necessarily affected by current events. These were good stories that were standalone, and you really didn't have to know who, who was the current uh, ventriloquist. Mm-hmm. And and then in um, Detective 832, we've got this great work, White Shark guy coming up again, and uh, did we really have to see that? Because this really doesn't sort of fit. I'm not saying, you know, that that you know, these stories have to be consistent, you know, and they should be standalone as it is. But for me, those are elements that took me out a bit because there is stuff here happening that isn't necessarily going on with current continuity and not saying, again, that we have to have changes and things like that, but they just didn't quite hit the home run. Mm -hmm. We got a little repetitive. We saw Zatanna again. We saw Riddler as the PI again. It just didn't have that same feel for me, yeah. you know. It, it was not. It was. These were all case stories, but they weren't quite as good. And I'm going to have to give this. You know, I think I give the last one three and a half out of five. I have mm-hmm. to give this three out of five. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't as good this time around. It's the same old soup. Yes, it's the same. Old, it's decent soup. It's good it's fine. soup, but, but it's it's just not. You know, it just doesn't capture the magic as they had it the first time around. Yeah, no? that, that's a great way to put it. That's fantastic. And you know, I have to say, I'm going to agree with you. And I I can't really put my finger on the difference. I, I maybe it was because some of these stories kind of melded together and weren't really one shots. Uh, whereas the other, you know, from Batman Detective, they were pure one-shot stories. Uh, these were a little more mixed. I, I just, it, and the mood seems similar and everything seems almost the same, but it's just not as good as, uh, the last one, Batman Detective, that we did. So I think I gave it a three and a half. I think I'm going to join you at three. It's not bad. It's just not great. Yeah, and why and why, oh, why did they have to name this, you know, Death in the City? I mean, just, you know, could you not have thought of something different? I mean, if you're, there's just so many titles. I had no idea when I was doing research for this episode that they had so many Mm. titles with with Batman and Death in the same title. I just, oh, no, you know, really, this, you really didn't, this, this shouldn't be. It's not, folks. This this book isn't that bad as we're painting it. It's, mm-hmm. If you find it cheap, go go for it. You're not going to be that disappointed. You're going to get some decent artwork. Mm-hmm. You're going to get some decent stories. It's just not as good as the previous volume, but it's going to be tough for you to find. I think if if you just yeah. <laughs> death in the city. What, what what is that? I have no, no I idea what this it's means. Nothing about Gotham, really. I don't think no. there's anything about Gotham. Not at all. I, I, what did this title mean? Oh, no. I just uh, – it's too bad. Yeah, that's a shame. So we're both going to agree at about three Batarangs. So must read, recommend. That should be pretty easy. Yeah, I, I'd say you know, you're, if you're a Harley completist and is a Tana completist, you've got a couple of nice things right there to go for. But uh, I can't n- – n- not a must read and not, not uh, something yeah. I'd strongly recommend, let's if say. If you really want to see Joker be attacked by vampire bats, yeah, <laughs> maybe. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, Bat Books for Beginners is part of the BatmanUniverse.net network of podcasts and reviews. 
We offer all the Batman-based weekly comic book reviews, news, and some great podcasts, including the flagship comic podcast, Everyone Loves the Drake, Batgirl to Oracle, and so many more. If you like what we offer, please consider donating to us at the TBU Patreon account. You can find a link to our Patreon account on the BatmanUniverse.net website. Now, I mentioned Batgirl to Oracle. Chris, you've done some work with uh, with Stella over at Batgirl to Oracle, haven't you? Yeah, I've been very fortunate to have been on Stella's podcast, and I'm still a part of it. Stella had me on uh, when uh, I was reviewing the Batman 66 title, Mm -hmm. but now I'm reviewing the Batman Adventures title. So if you want to just go for an excellent podcast, Stella is fantastic. She does a great job with her guests, just the rapport she has. One of the, and I felt so bad, Jerry. Did you listen to the last comic cast where people were taking her to task for her podcast being too long? Yes, I felt so bad. And then, and then we, I find out that we're the shortest podcast, yeah. and then now, and I thought, well, you know, Jerry and I cut to the chase, but I now I got a bad feeling that we, we I've, I've overstayed my welcome to, on this episode because this is one of our longer shows, and I feel so bad that uh, we're, we're trying to, you know, got something to prove. But yeah. no, Jerry and I have talked that we do, we do try to make this a short, tight episode, yeah, and we we just cut to the chase and stuff like that but by no means you know do she 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 has great content come on i i don't i i felt so bad that people were taking her to task on that so yeah i just like teasing her yeah i think so too and don't uh, about the coffee too that's another yeah good so well yeah uh go see us on twitter if you want to get on on that on that stuff but yeah i'm on batgirl to oracle i Mm -hmm. reviewed the batman adventures title and i'm very fortunate to be a part of her show now if you want some excellent written reviews though Mm. i would direct you to see my partner Mm -hmm. and some of the other fine folks that write written reviews on the batman universe website Mm -hmm. jerry what do you review on the batman universe website at the moment well i'm doing batgirl and the birds of prey i'm reviewing harley and ivy meet betty and veronica and i am very hopeful that uh you know, we're going to be, there's going to be some of the Young Animals books coming back, uh, that I'm going to be taking on. So that's, uh, that's very exciting. Um, I've been doing Mother Panic and I hope that that comes back and, uh, and we get to do that again. Now, Chris, you are on Twitter. Right. Yes, thank you so much. I'm on Twitter. You can find me on the handle at B2 on Bad Books. That's at B2 on Bad Books. Sometimes I'll just tweet about uh, a lot of random things, a lot of pop culture things, things not necessarily related to comics, or whatever strikes my fancy. Jerry, can folks find you on Twitter? They probably can if they go to Twitter and go to Professor Frenzy. I cover my favorite DC books. I do some Dark Shadows stuff. I do some indie comics reviewing. And Chris and I both uh, do some live tweeting of horror movies on Saturday nights at hashtag Spengoolie. So come out and join us uh, there and, and watch some really good bad movies. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we sometimes get bored a little early, too. Sometimes we'll do a little live tweeting off the, the MeTV channel yep. on Saturday nights. We'll start off with uh, Wonder Woman. I don't get – before Wonder Woman is Wild Wild West, and I, yeah. I watch it, but I don't live tweet during that so much. But mm-hmm. Wonder Woman is where I get on board. It's tough to keep up with the live tweets on Sven Gulli, but boy, oh boy, Jerry, partner, you do a fantastic oh, job, and you're hysterical on there. Uh yeah, and then right after that is Batman, and then right after that is uh, what? God, the lineup change. I think I think we're Star Trek. Star Trek, Star Trek yes, and then it's uh, uh, 
I still know if it's Battlestar Galactica, and then we got Kolchak now. Yeah, Kolchak's come on. There. Yes. It used to be The Outer Limits, and now it's Kolchak. I, I love watching the stuff that you do on Batman. I just sit back, and I'm just in awe of what you do with that. <laughs> it's so great. <laughs> I try not to be mean, but it's such an easy target on some of those episodes, yes. Yeah, we just had it. Well, there was a pretty good one. The Liberace episode was pretty darn good. I enjoyed that. Oh, it's a it's a classic. Yeah, it's a classic, really yes. Yeah. So now we also have some other friends that we've been, uh, you know, that have their own podcast that we've been listening to and interacting with. One is The Cosmic Treadmill, and that's by Chris Sheehan, who's also on Twitter at Ace Comics, and uh, Reggie Reggie, who you can find on Twitter as well. And the two of them discuss some classic comics, some really, really good stuff. They do the voices. They do a really good job, and I really enjoy it. Even if you don't like the comics, the com- their, their podcast is a lot of fun. I really like what they examine, and the recent episode that I heard was uh, the Terry Long character, the universally hated Terry Long, former Terry Long character who uh, dated uh, and eventually wed uh, Donna Troy slash Wonder Girl. Mm-hmm. Great episode. Boy, they really got to the gist of the character, and always an amusing show, always great subject matter that they cover on that. Yeah, it's fantastic. And we also listen to the Sutherlands, Aaron and Ruth Sutherland, who do a number of fantastic podcasts. Uh, they do uh, Warlord World, Xenozoic, Xenophiles, Trekker Talk, and they have a new podcast called Sensational Sleuths, where they cover some uh, classic detectives from from history. And they, their first one was about Sherlock Holmes, and that was fantastic. Absolutely. The recent episode of Xenozoic Xenophiles just dropped. Yep. There's a current episode of Warlord Worlds that they just recently dropped as well. Mm-hmm. Fantastic stuff. Fantastic guests. Mm-hmm. Just, just great shows. Really tight. And I, I admire the Sutherlands a lot and just very, very entertaining podcasts. Yeah, very good. So some other, uh, other ones we're looking at is, uh, Longbox Crusade, uh, Pat Sampson and the gang or you know, they, they go and they talk about their comics. We also talk to Randy Andrews, who does uh, Soundtrack Alley, which is fantastic. And Chris, you you had a you were on Soundtrack Alley. Uh, yeah, I want to give a special shout out to Randy, who is just a most sincere mm-hmm. host and was gracious enough to have me a few episodes back already, yeah. where we looked at the Batman Murderer storyline and uh, Alexander Shebel, who mm-hmm. composed some marvelous music for that. Mm-hmm. You could still find that on any of the podcast providers. It just just great stuff, but Randy does a sensational job on both Soundtrack Alley mm-hmm. and the Gen 13 files. Be sure to check out both of those podcasts. Definitely. That Gen 13, is a, that's a relatively new one, and that's a terrific one to, to listen to. I definitely recommend that, too. You know, we have a, a friend who who also we're on Twitter with, and we do uh, some of the Spanguli stuff, uh, Clinton Robeson, who does the Coffee and Comics podcast. You mentioned uh, about teasing uh, Stella earlier. Um, <laughs> Clinton is a coffee fiend, as I, I can appreciate that. I am too. And he's always uh, teasing Stella. She's not. So that's always fun. Brilliant exchanges, good-natured humor between both of them, and it's it's a it, it, nice byplay. It's 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 nice to see such friendly byplay and nothing taken too seriously. I hope you know yeah. with with that. So it's really good. Hey, guess what, Jerry? We got a nice email. Speaking of the aforementioned Darren, Darren Sutherland wrote us an email in regards to our last show. Shall I read it? Please do, Chris. Thank you so much. Darren writes, one way or another. This was another terrific episode, starting with Jerry's great homage to the terrific Blondie song. Oh. <laughs> yes. 
I, and I have to concur. That was really, really good. <laughs> Darren go on to write, coincidentally, we saw Blondie at an outdoor concert just last summer, but I don't remember seeing you on stage, Jerry. <laughs> you must have been hidden from our view behind some of those giant speakers. <laughs> no, and, you know, I'm going to stop right here, but Jerry, you did a fantastic oh, job. Thank All the you. Music. That was really good, really good. Was Darren good. continues, yeah. Darren continues, poor Chris. Were you already suffering from your cold during this mm. recording? Your research was top-notch as always, but you sounded a bit like Spock on one of the classic episodes of Star Trek where you, you could tell Leonard Nimoy was suffering from a cold. Yes, and I still am, as a matter of fact. This is the cold that will not leave. So, yeah, from December 22nd all the way through January 9th, I still am suffering. You're but a trooper, Chris. I am. Thank you so much, my friend. Yes, <laughs> What I won't do for the podcasting world. That's uh, right. I, 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 yes, I, this, this, I, no, I, I, but I'm having the time of my life. It is yeah, just so, so fun just fun. to talk comics with somebody. It's, it is. Yeah. Darren continues, yay, a Mary Tyler Moore reference. Yay, an Ellery Queen reference too. Yeah. Yes, I was not. I was that one guy in school who knew that John Hillerman was oh. from Ellery Queen instead of Magna P.I. or Knight Rider. LOL. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good catch. It's nice us to know some Gus too. Exactly right. <laughs> He continues, you guys have been fantastic from the first episode, but I must say you are somehow managing to get better. It's like listening to a well-oiled machine that you each set each other up and hand off comments to each other is very nicely done. And with regard to the last uh, book that we reviewed, I need to pick up this collection. I really enjoyed hearing your summaries and reviews. Mm. Yes, just got to the end of the episode, and you mentioned your cold, Chris. Wow, so sorry that your cold has stuck around that long. Oh, thank you so much. Mm. Thank you for the kind comments about Sensational Sooth. Take care. Signed, Darren Sutherland. Well, that was really nice. Thank you, Darren. Yeah. And we also got some nice likes and retweets Mm. from our last show. Got quite a long list here. And if I butcher your name, please let me know. You can contact me directly at BTO on Bat Books. If you wish to contact me directly by email, I am at bruce.wayne at gothamcity.us. And if we forget you, our sincere apologies, but we really, really love to do this part of the show where we give some shout-outs, where we acknowledge the likes and retweets we've got. We sincerely, sincerely appreciate this. And Jerry, you know, this is, I think we're, is this our one-year anniversary show? It we, is. It, it is. is. Wow. Here and, you know, we've come a long way and we've, we've, we've had, we've made so many friends in the podcast oh, so world. True. Based on uh, this and Twitter, and I, it's just been so fantastic, and it's really been organic, and this has just exceeded anything that I could have imagined yeah, so. when, I, when I've been paraphrasing. So thank you so much before I read these oh, likes. Thank just, you. Yeah, thank it's been you. great doing this with you. Been great. Absolutely. Been great doing with you. The, this with you, Jerry. So thank you so much. So those shout outs to uh, Randall Andrews at Randall Andrews One, who does Soundtrack Alley and the aforementioned Gen 13 files. Mm-hmm. And Longbrox Crusade can be found mm-hmm. on Twitter at Longbrox Crusade. We also heard from Jeff Hunter at Jeff Hun at Jeff Hun 34911855. We also heard from Do Right at Do Right For You, Charles Kuntha at Charles C71, Jeffrey Brown at Chingo. Mm-hmm. We also heard from Weird Science DC at Weird Science DC. Thank you so much. That's an excellent review site. Check those guys out. The aforementioned Clinton Robeson at Coffee and Comics at Coffee and Comics Blog. Speedy Gonzalez at PremJ77. The Batman Universe at Batman Universe. Hey, thank you, guys. We'll try to keep it a a tight ship and a short (laughs) short. I had no idea where the the short short. But we do do try to keep it nice and contented. 
I'm friendly there. Yeah. We also had from Nate Devon Sanford at Fox Kids Nation. We also heard from Oso Studio Comics at Camacho underscore Designs. Dr. Dave's D Hook at Dr. D Hook. Bonnie Normand at BSNA9433. Bill Beer, longtime friend All of right. our show. Bill Beer at Gotham Night 13. Reggie Reggie at Reggie Reggie. Chris yeah. Sheehan at East Comics. Those guys. Dark Knight Minute, a long mm-hmm. recurring sponsor and friend of our show. Dark Knight Minute, great podcast. Heard it today. Good, good stuff. Please check out Dark Knight Minute podcast yeah. so they can be found at Dark Knight Minute at Dark Knight Min. Trekker Talk, the Sutherland Strike Again at yeah. Trekker Talk. Yeah. We also heard from Luz at Luz Less. And finally, we heard from Dave G at Davey Gould. Thank you, one and all. And again, if I forgot you, Please drop me a line, and we'll be sure to mention you on our next podcast. Fantastic. Thanks, Chris. Well, that's all we have for today. Please join us in two weeks. I think it's two weeks. Maybe it's three weeks, actually, when Chris and I will cover Outsiders Checkmate Checkout. My name is Jerry. And I'm Chris. And thank you for listening to Bat Books for Beginners. Every day at my LCS I find the bad books that are best I know I got some inside information You know I've got some guys Bad books for beginners Hosted by Chris and Jerry It's just bad books for beginners with Chris and Jerry.